Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Anna Sorkin, perhaps better known as Anna Delvey, Mm -hmm. has recently been back in the news. Yes. She was sentenced in a New York court to four to 12 years in prison on a handful of fraud charges. She rejected a plea deal that could have gotten her out of jail early if she voluntarily returned to Germany, would have gotten her out of jail early. Um, And in her remarks... Anna Delvey said, mm-hmm. I'd be lying to you and to everyone else and to myself if I said I was sorry for anything. <laughs> and also, I was power hungry. I'm not a good person. Oh, wow. Yeah. This She's is real self-aware. life Game of Thrones. She is very self-aware. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think uh, last summer, um, past co-host Bridget, she loves scammers. Mm-hmm. She loves a good scam queen. Right. And she was so excited to talk about this and I was kind of out of the loop and I enjoyed I enjoyed learning about it. But that's 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 the thing is why right. do we like scam queens? At the same time she also said I'm not sorry and I'd do it again. She did? I I'm not going to lie. That's just baller. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. I'm like, "Yep, okay. She owns it. She runs with it. She going to do her." She is. She is. So we thought we would rerun this this classic episode on Anna Delvey. We hope you enjoy. Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Now, today I'm pretty happy to talk about this topic. Um, This is a topic that kind of came on my radar on social media, specifically Twitter, and I was kind of obsessed with it. And then I was so pleased when a few people wrote in asking for us to do an episode on it. And that topic is scam queen Anna Delvey. (laughs) Yes. Bridget was very, very, very excited to talk about this. Um, And I, I... kind of have read a little bit about it, and I'm excited because Bridget's excited. So I hope that everyone is kind of excited to learn about this. Yeah, scammers, famous scammers are like my fan fiction. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, pretty much. You know, you should find fan fiction about famous scammers. I would, that would make me too happy. I would die of happiness. That's a good way to go, though. It is a good way. Reading about, reading in-depth, like, Fan fiction about scammers, I would die with a smile on my face. So one thing that people, if you listen to this show, you probably already know about me, which is that I have a love of things that are kind of problematic. Um, I like, you know, we have that series specifically on problematic faves that I was excited to do because I love so many people and things that are problematic. Um, I love Tanya Harding. I love bad movies and bad TV. And one of the things on that list of problematic, kind of messed up things that I kind of can't get enough of is scammers. You know, I've always been fascinated by people who pretend to be something they're not. And, you know, I think one of the reasons why we kind of, myself personally, but as a culture, why I think that we're so interested in scammers is because, you know, you meet so many people that come off as confident. They come off like they know exactly what they're doing and they are very good at, you know, that authentic veneer of who they are. And then you find out, oh, that's all an act. Actually, they're a scammer. Like they're scamming me right now. And I think that there's something in that, you know, part of me feels like we all sort of feel like we're scamming on some level. And that when you meet somebody who is, has bold face, perfected that scam, it's almost sort of, even though they're doing something awful, at least for me, you almost kind of have to respect it. Yeah, and you are not the only one who feels that way, Bridget, clearly, because we have found some research into it. But um, why why do you think, as a culture, we are so into this? Well, it's funny. Um, over at The New Yorker, writer Gia Tolentino has this great theory that they kind of, our, our fascination with scammers kind of comes in seasons, and she calls it grifter season. She writes... Grifter season comes irregularly, but it often comes in America, which is built around mythologies of profit and reinvention and spectacular ascent. The shady, audacious figures at its center exist on a spectrum, from folk hero to disgrace. 
The season begins when the public catches on to some series of scammers of a particularly appealing sort, the kind that provoke both schadenfreude and admiration. And I think that really kind of nails my sort of love-hate relationship with scammers, because on the one hand, it's disgraceful. Somebody, somebody scamming somebody else out of money, you know, abusing their trust, all of that is disgraceful. But it's difficult to sort of not respect a certain level of boldness of scams. Like there's this meme that was kind of popular maybe like a year or two ago, Joanne the Scammer. It's a alter ego of a, of a comedian where he's pretending to be this scammer who was always running scams on people and coming up with sort of little witticisms about scams. Things like, you know, scam today before today scams you. I think it's a couple of things. I think it's a, a, a fascination with scamming in general. But I also think when it's a woman, I do think there's a little bit of an anti-heroine thing happening where we so often expect women to be, you know, good and trustworthy. And when we think about scammers or criminals, we think about men. But then when a woman is doing the scamming, I think she almost, it, there's almost this inclination to lift her up as an anti-hero. Yeah, yeah, I can see that for sure. And I think that's something we do see in our um, media and entertainment. And another reason that in, culturally we might have this, this kind of love and respect of, of scammers is that scammers thrive in times of cultural unrest or unease. The writer Bridget mentioned before, Gia Tolentino, in her piece, she uses a quote from Maria Konnikova from her book, uh, The Confidence Game, cons thrive in times of transition. And the term confidence man was coined in 1849 by the New York Herald and pieces about a bumbling scammer who would ask strangers on the street, have you confidence in me to trust me with your watch until tomorrow? <laughs> no, I hope not. At that point in American history, the gold rush was producing a swarm of swindlers in California, and free banking was enabling wildcat banks and counterfeiters to circulate worthless bills. Scammers love nothing better, Konakova notes, than, quote, exploiting the sense of unease we feel when it appears that the world as we know it is about to change, which it does make complete sense that that's the time when you would want to kind of play on people's insecurities and unease. Yeah, and we are for sure in the middle of a moment of cultural and social and political unease. Gia goes on to write, one gets the sense that these days that such unease may become constant. The entire globe is getting hotter. Market pressures are accelerating. Technology is advancing at a dizzying rate. At some point between the Great Recession, which began in 2008, and the terrible election of 2016, scamming seems to have become the dominant logic of American life. The things that people have historically used to build non-scammy lives in this country, housing, higher education, had deteriorated to the point where they are likely to punish you if you are not already wealthy. The bankers pushing reverse mortgages, the recruiters at for-profit colleges, and the many startup founders hoping to take massive investor-backed losses until they eradicate the rest of the market understand the world better than we do. That's part of the reason they're so riveting, down to the last details. Scammers show us the glitzy bullshit intrinsic to the stratospheric wealth in America. They show us that the best way to make money in this country is to treat everybody around you like a mark. Yeah, I mean, it, when you think about it, it's hard not to be fascinated by that, by that kind of social game, treating everybody sort of, yeah, mark. And it, it kind of reminds me of uh, The Great Gatsby and how he sort of tricked his way up into that society. See, but, it, but even, when, I, I'm so glad you brought up that story because that story is sort of about the scam inherent to this idea of the American dream, right? That Gatsby yeah. has reinvented himself in kind of a scammy way, you know, bootlegging and lying about his identity and all of that. Because, and, like, and like, on its face, it seems like the American dream that he bootstrapped his way up into, into success. But actually, the American dream is bullshit. And so, of course, it's a scam. Exactly, yeah. Um, and there are plenty of, quote, good scammers of all genders. Billy McFarland of Fire Festival fame. The British royal family expert who was actually just a guy from upstate New York. But we want to focus on female scammers because there is something special about them, like Bridget mentioned earlier. Yeah, I, I also think part of it is that we love in this country to root for a woman and then we love when she falls like we love to follow 
the demise of a woman. Like we, like we can't get enough of a story of a powerful woman gone wrong or a woman who seemed like she had it all and then really it turned out she was scamming everyone. I do think that there's something about the vigor with which that we enjoy these stories when it happens to a woman. That's my, that's just my opinion. <laughs> I think you, you seem like you're pretty well versed in this subject, Bridget. Yeah, so I actually would love to do an entire series of scammers. Scammers like Elizabeth Holmes. You may know her as blood testing scammer. She had that entire company um, that was supposed to be able to give blood tests. You know, like you could go to a CVS and like prick your finger and it would be able to give you all these tests in real time. But it was actually just a scam. Like she had gotten all this money and it didn't work. And she probably knew it didn't work. And a lot of people are like, oh, she'd probably be in jail, but she's not in jail. So a uh, really interesting, fascinating scammer. Also, like black turtleneck scammer. If you never saw a picture of her not wearing a black turtleneck, kind of ruined that look for everybody, to be honest with you. There is Vogue scammer Yvonne Bannigan, who was accused of siphoning away $53,564 while she was Grace Coddington's assistant. Uh, so many good female scammers out there. So if you know of one that you would love for us to talk about, whether it's a scammer of today or a, a historical female scammer, please let us know. But today, we are talking about the undisputed scam queen of summer, one Miss Anna Delvey. Yes, I love scam queen of summer. Yeah, I actually put out a, 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 I mean, this is an unscientific poll, but I put out one of those Twitter polls asking who you thought the scam queen of summer was. I made the running Anna Delvey, Elizabeth Holmes, Jill Stein, or like write-in candidate. Uh, I think Anna Delvey actually ended up coming in second. The write-in candidate won. Donald Trump, our president, <laughs> came in first as the summer scam queen. Wow. <laughs> well, congrats. To no one. <laughs> <laughs> no, we all lose. I mean, that's another, that's another interesting point about why I'm so fascinated with scams, because we associate scammers with a certain class, I believe. Like when you think of scammers, you think of somebody who is not a wealthy person trying to become or pretend to be wealthy. We have like rich scammers all over the place. Like Scott Pruitt, former head of the EPA, was basically a scammer, but people, people don't label him a scammer because he's male and well-connected and rich and white. But Homeboy was trying to use his connections in the government to get his wife a Chick-fil-A franchise. Like, that's a scam. That is a scam. He is a scammer. Yeah. He also was trying to buy old mattresses. I can't wrap my head around that one. Honestly, there are so many, like, classic scams that if we stripped away the veneer of he's a high-level White House administration official, whatever, it would just be any other scammer with like Ferragamo belts and like knockoff Chanel. Like it is such a budget scam. The only reason we don't talk about it in that way is because of his connections. Like if you, if you stripped all of those things away, which he actually resigned, so they have been stripped away. If you didn't have that title, it would be, it would be anybody else like scamming their way into free stuff. Like we, like all scammers do. Like he's not special just because he's Scott Pruitt. Yeah, Scott Pruitt, you're not special. <laughs> <laughs> but today we are not talking about just any scammer, right, Bridget? We're talking about Anna Delvey, one of your favorite scammers. She's a good scammer. If there was like a scammer trading cards, she'd be the one that I would be really, really stoked to get. So let's get into who Anna Delvey is, for those of you who don't know, um, and why she is the scam queen of summer after this quick break. We're back. So Anna Delvey, first of all, she's my favorite scammer. Uh, I've read literally every piece of content on the internet about her rise and fall, including a lot of comment threads. I don't know if it was her or like her representative or whatever posted her mailing address in prison on her Instagram. And I sent her a snail mail letter asking her to come on the podcast. I will update you if we're able to get a phone interview with Anna Delvey on this podcast. If someone knows her, tell her that we would love to have her on so we, so we can you know, hear her story and how she got to where she is. I will put it that way. <laughs> which um, is prison. <laughs> yeah, which is prison. <laughs> I mean, I think we know how she got where she is. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's like when you read these articles, there was a really, there are really good pieces in both Vanity Fair and The Cut that are super in-depth about the con that she played and sort of how she so successfully preyed on women, a certain sort of 
class aspiration of these women, it really, it really is fascinating and masterful. So first, this Vanity Fair photo editor named Rachel Williams, she was actually scammed by Delvey herself and it ended up costing her thousands of dollars. So she wrote this piece about what exactly happened in Vanity Fair. So basically, she meets Anna in a hotel and Anna says that she's a German heiress who lives out of a hotel. Anna has these grand plans to open what basically sounds like the Soho House of Art. So it's going to be, quote, a dynamic visual art center dedicated to contemporary art. Um, and she talks about how she wants to use family trust money to afford this. She wants to like get investors. She sounds like someone who has grand and ambitious plans. But here's the thing. This is the kind of plan that if someone, if you met somebody in a hotel, even if they seemed rich and they told you they had this, this idea, the plan would still kind of sound preposterous. But that's one of the tenets of her scam, which is the same way that Tinkerbell only exists if you believe in her, like if you don't believe in her, she dies. Anna had this way of making people believe these grand plans and these grand schemes of hers, even though they sounded preposterous. And in a kind of way, the reason that they are kind of believable is because they sound over the top. Rachel writes, in my line of work, I had often encountered ambitious, well-off individuals. So though her undertaking sounded grand in scale and promising in theory, my sincere enthusiasm hardly outweighed a measure of skepticism. And again, yeah, you can see how, you know, someone meeting a rich girl in a hotel who's like, I have this grand idea to make this big, lavish club full of art and rich people. If anybody else told you that, you would be, you'd think, oh, sure, of course, you're going to do that. Yeah, right. But because that's sort of part of her scam is, you know, having this sort of laissez-faire attitude about money and, you know, having these grand plans that don't seem like they would ever work. That's kind of how rich people are. And if you want people to believe that you are rich, having some big undertaking that seems really far-fetched would actually kind of solidify that in a kind of way, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I think just the way she was so... She would just buy really expensive things at restaurants. She kind of did have this particular circle of people. So if you're thinking, hmm, I don't know about her, but then you meet other people and they seem to be in this circle of orbit and they seem to have accepted her, then you kind of start to accept, well, she must have passed this test. If she traffics in this group of people, then even if maybe she'll never succeed in this plan that I think is probably unrealistic, she must still have the money. She must still be in this class of people that she is saying she is in. Right. And I mean, I've, I've actually had a few mild scammers in my orbit in political work because anybody who's doing political work, like you will, you will encounter some scammers for sure. That's another thing that I think scammers really traffic in is having other people to kind of vouch for them or verify them. And I'm thinking of one scammer that who kind of like, this is someone I knew personally, so I don't want to like blow up their spot. I mean, they, there was an entire article about their scam. But one of the things that was a hallmark of how he scammed was getting other respected political people to kind of vouch for him. And so once you're sort of in and one person that you know is like authentic and like legit, like vouches for you, like you're kind of in, it kind of like, you kind of like get yeah. your hand stamped. And it sounds like Anna trafficked in wealthy, well-connected people. So if you meet somebody who is actually wealthy and well-connected and they're like, oh, Anna's good people, that's kind of like a hand stamp. Yeah, I do find that if you, the bigger the lie, the more you might be like, well, no one would tell something as ridiculous as that because it could be easily checked. But if you, you have to do it with confidence though and kind of, the way it sounds like her personality was one that kind of made you believe she was this type of person, this specific type of person, and, and that her accepting you and inviting you to things, it was kind of flattering. And you sort of wanted to be someone that Anna Delvey wanted to have in her circle. Definitely. That's so part of it. When someone, I mean, two of the people who extensively went on the record about being scammed by Delvey both talk about sort of how she seemed like the kind of person who didn't really let a lot of people in and like kind of seemed a little bit isolated and that because she chose to, you know, want to travel with them and want to be good friends with them, it was almost sort of flattering. So basically Rachel ends up going on this lavish trip to a villa in Marrakesh and you might be thinking like, oh, that sounds like a lot of money. Like, I bet it was an expensive trip. 
Whatever you are thinking, it was so much more lavish than that. They traveled with a full-time butler who Anna was supposed to pay for. So Anna is supposed to be picking up the tab on this whole trip. Now here's where Rachel says that things took a turn. So Anna ends up booking a $7,000 a night private Riyadh, which if you haven't heard of that, I have not either. It's a Moroccan villa with an interior courtyard, three bedrooms and a pool. And Anna ends up forwarding Rachel the confirmation email. But due to some seemingly minor snafu, the plane tickets had been put on Rachel's American Express card. And Anna basically was like, oh, I'll pay you back, I'll pay you back. Uh, Rachel, I mean, part of me thinks is thinking like, girl, what are you doing? Part of me kind of gets it. She says, since I did this all the time for work, I didn't give it a second thought. So you might be thinking, wow, I would never agree to this. But if you think your friend is rich, you probably, like, maybe you would. Like, I ask myself all the time, if I met this mysterious rich woman who seemed to be rich, other rich people knew her, she was throwing money around, she wants to take me to, to Marrakesh, you know, I can't, I, I don't know if I would do it or not, but I can't say that my bullshit detector will be going off and that I wouldn't do it. What about you? Yeah, I I feel like reading this article was very enlightening to me because if you just sort of hear the details without the sort of personal, all of these personal aspects of it, it does sound like, wow, <laughs> why would you ever agree to that? But at this point, they had been friends for a while. And also she wasn't, Rachel wasn't the only person going. A personal trainer was going as well. Yeah, if, if it's your friend and she says she's going to pay for it, you've seen her put down a lot of money before. Um, it's, it's a trip that you probably are excited to go on. I don't think you'd have any real reason if you'd seen all these other people vouch for her to suspect otherwise. I would be uncomfortable when it, like, it would have to be on my credit card. I think I would be uncomfortable, but I, I don't think I would say anything because you do want the friendship to work. And uh, I mean, I can just see it. I can see it. I can totally understand going along with this personally. Another aspect of it is sort of what I was talking about before, that if you were trying to maintain that you were a wealthy person, I do, I mean, this is going to sound like a vast generalization. It does make sense to me that someone who is massively, massively wealthy would also be the kind of person who might be a bit careless with what they perceived as small amounts of money. I had a friend who was very, very wealthy and, you know, she didn't work. She sort of was able to sort of work here and there in sort of creative fields and like was clearly being supported by her parents. But she never paid for a cab. She never paid for dinner. She would notoriously sort of walk out on the tab. It would be like $10, $20. But because she just had a different sense of money than we did. And so for me, someone who is not rich, you know, if somebody picks up a tab for me, I make a mental note, you know, I have to get them back. I have to pay them back. This is $30, whatever. But I got the sense from being around her that it's kind of hard to explain, but because she was so rich, a certain kind of laissez-faire, careless attitude about money just kind of probably confirmed that she was rich in a kind of way. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. I have a, I had a friend like that as well, where <laughs> there's kind of some resentment and we had to talk about it because I always ended up paying for things and he had way more money than I did, <laughs> like way more money than I did. And it, it just didn't seem to even occur to him that it would be sort of a bigger deal for me. And I, like, I'm totally, I wasn't saying he needed to pay for everything at all, but like equal, let's share here. <laughs> it just didn't seem to be as big a factor to him. So I'm not, I'm not making this up. It, it does seem like it's a little bit of a thing anecdotally. It does seem that way, yes. So here's where it all kind of starts to go south for Anna and Rachel while traveling. So Anna's card gets declined. And of course, Rachel asks the thing that everyone always asks when your card is declined. Oh, did you tell your banks that you're traveling? And she's like, no, I didn't. And so this, again, sort of just is like, oh, well, she's traveling. It's probably some sort of bank issue. This is embarrassing to admit, but the times that I've had my credit card or my debit card declined, the cashier always gives you that very gracious, you know, maybe you need to call the bank. It's probably a problem with your card. You know, they don't ever want to come out and say you have no money. Yeah. <laughs> That's always a very gracious, um, a very gracious. So basically what happened after that is that the hotel kind of gets wind that there's no credit card on file for this extremely, extremely lavish villa that they're staying in that I'm sure costs I mean, at this point, if it's $7,000 a night, I mean, at this point, it's probably so expensive. 
And once the hotel gets wise, basically Rachel has to foot the bill in order for them to leave. And again, that would be so, I mean, I don't know what I would do in that situation if you're being held in a foreign country and you don't really have a lot of money and you don't, you're not able to leave. And listen, a Vanity Fair photo editor probably does not make that much money. This was probably an intensely terrifying thing for her. Oh, yeah. And in the article, she talks about how hotel security was like in their room all the time, kind of waiting for them, not letting them go anywhere. The personal trainers that went with them, she had already left because she had like a stomach issue. So she, Rachel was alone with Anna and Rachel by this point was stressed out as well. And she wanted to go ahead and leave and they wouldn't let her leave unless somebody paid, paid up put a credit card down, and Rachel was the one that had to do it. And Anna was saying, you know, well, I I can fix this. I can't do it now. She was kind of being, she was very stressed about it and not being too clear about how to solve the problem. She, She was sort of like, I'm not sure why this is happening. I don't understand and not offering any real solutions. I mean, you would hope that if your super wealthy friend, you know, was, this was happening, that they would be like, oh, let me call my dad. Let me do this. Let me do that. But it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I'm sure that Rachel was very frustrated, but it does again, the way that she was acting does not surprise me that it didn't immediately kick in that, oh, this girl is broke and she's, she's scamming all of us. So when they get back to America, Rachel's trying to get her money back and it really sounds like she started to kind of unravel. She writes, stress consumed my sleep and fueled my days. My coworker saw me unravel. I came to the office looking pale and undone. This, it, it sounds like this started to just take over her life. This one trip and this one arrangement with this one person that she happened to randomly meet in a hotel. Sounds like it was starting to take over her full life. Yeah. And wasn't it like $70,000 yes. on her credit card? That's a lot yes. of money. It's so much money. I mean, in the article, it's quoted as being more than her, her yearly salary. So this is a year's worth of work that is gone because of this one person. That's an amount of money I can't imagine if you, you thought you a friend was going to foot it and then all of a sudden it's on you and you weren't anticipating it and you probably don't have it. That level of stress must have been unbearable. Yeah, that would would ruin my life. So basically, Rachel gets the police involved and only then is the sort of grandness of, of this whole situation revealed to her. She was accused of falsifying documents from international banks showing accounts abroad with a total balance of approximately 60 million euro. That's about 70 million American dollars. According to a press release from the New York County District Attorney's Office announcing the indictment, in late 2016, she took those documents to the City National Bank in an attempt to secure a $22 million loan creation for her arts foundation and private club. When City National Bank denied the loan, she showed the same documents to Fortress Investment Group in Midtown, New York. Fortress agreed to consider the loan if Anna provided $100,000 to cover legal and due diligence expenses. On January 12, 2017, almost a month before she returned to New York, Anna secured a $100,000 loan from City National Bank by convincing the bank representative to let her overdraft her account. She allegedly promised the bank that she would wire funds shortly to cover the overdraft, which is a very familiar thing in her world. She gave the borrowed money to Fortress. So basically, she was moving around so many different large quantities of money, like millions and millions of dollars, and sort of kind of, um, what's the expression? Like robbing Peter to pay Paul? Like, getting money from, getting a a loan secured from one bank and then using that loan to get another loan from another bank. Like a massive shell game where there was never really any money to begin with. Yeah, it kind of sounds like a pyramid scheme, but with like people, (laughs) people and money, not no products at all. Just, just one person convincing people she had money somewhere and she'd get it back to you. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And this quote that Rachel has from her piece kind of, you know, chronicling her nightmare with Anna, really nails it. Anna represented the kind of life we all wish we could have. It's too good to be true. The reality of Anna's behind-the-scenes dealings, these figures flying from one account to another, remains dizzying to this day. That she was allegedly orchestrating such an elaborate scheme while maintaining a believable surface cool, wielding her debit cards to pay for dinners, workouts, beauty products, and spa treatments. She conjured a glittering, frictionless city. Whatever one wanted could be bought, Wherever one wanted to go was a cab or a plane ride away. The audacity of her performance sold itself until it collapsed under the weight of its own ambition. It's part of why I believed her to continue to believe her. Who would think to make this up, such an elaborate tale, and carry on like this for so long? 
Who was she? How do you know who anyone is, really? And I think that line really does a great job of encapsulating what makes someone like Anna so, so kind of mystifying. You know, she really represented this world where everything is possible. It's not surprising to me that this all happened on the backdrop of New York City, because when you live in New York, as I I did for a few years, it seems like there are two cities, right? There's the one city where you are toiling and you're always sweaty and everything is always a nightmare. And even something simple like wanting to get groceries or going to the bank is a huge ordeal and everything is hard. And I just, when I lived in New York, my, my biggest memories were like toil and how everything was, it was always something like just to get groceries was the biggest pain in the world. And I always felt like I was sort of battling the city. And then you would see these rich moneyed, wealthy, well-connected girls who seemingly lived in a different city. It's like we lived, we lived in the same city, but we lived in two different cities in a kind of way. And I think Anna represented the possibility that you could live in a world where anything you want, whether it's a massage or a private workout or a trip to Marrakesh or a personalized gown, whatever it is that you want, you can have it. Like that is so seductive. And of course, like who wouldn't want that? I think it it is this sort of modern day Great Gatsby American dream where, you know, you can move to New York with nothing and reinvent yourself to be this this German heiress for whom everything is possible. Everything is at your fingertips. Yes. And I do love that aspect of the story that she was a German heiress. (laughs) Um, And that quote, I I think it's really well written and um, it does capture a lot of why you would you would go along with this, why it was believable. I mean, to witness someone outwardly so confident, if if the money isn't there, but they're displaying no outward signs <laughs> that there's a problem, it it's it's impressive in a way. It really is. I I like am someone who I have usually when I have money, even if I'm always like expecting my credit card to get turned down. Like I always am like, here's my credit card with a question mark behind it. <laughs> I know. You treat credit cards like gift cards where you're like, there might be something on this one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like secretly t- in turmoil that it's going to come back. They're going to be like, well, sorry, ma'am, but this did not go through. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's got <laughs> Hannah Delvey as no money. And it's just, like, confident. Again, like, I know she's a bad person for scamming people who didn't have a ton of money, but part of me has to sort of admire that confidence where when you walk up to a cashier and you give your credit card to buy something lavish and your credit card is declined, instead of being like, oh, I don't have any money, which all of us would do, somehow making it, you know, it's like, let me talk to the manager. It's like the person who has that kind of audacity, that person is so not me, and I am fascinated by that person. She really took fake it until you make it to its ultimate, (laughs) its highest, highest point, the most extreme, yeah. Exactly. So another sort of major player in the whole Anna Delvey saga is Neff. Neff really has emerged as sort of the folk hero that we all deserve in this story. Uh, Neff is, like me, a Black girl from Washington, D.C., Shout out to Netflix executives who are already turning Anna Delvey's story into a Netflix show. If you need someone to play Neff, please call me because this was the role I was born to play. Um, Neff worked at the hotel where Anna Delvey was living and really gives a different, a different glimpse into these scams. So basically, Neff says that Anna Delvey, one of the sort of layers of her scam was that she would treat the people in the hotel very, very nicely, like basically become their friends and Bear in mind, this is the hotel where she was living and not paying the bill. So she was like racking up thousands of dollars. But by befriending the staff, it kind of gives you a certain kind of power to be able to do that. Yeah, they want you, since you're nice to them, they want to believe that you are a nice person and that their money is there. Like they want to give you that benefit of a doubt. Exactly. My favorite quote about Anna from Neff, she says, You know how Rihanna walks out with wine glasses? That was Anna. And they let her by Miss Delvey. So if you don't know what that means, basically Rihanna uh, is often photographed pretty much illegally, like leaving restaurants, going onto the street with a full glass of wine for the restaurant where she was just dining. I think that's against the law to like leave, to like get a drink at the bar at a restaurant. And then like, unless you're in New Orleans, 
to just stroll out onto the street, but they let her. And that's what she's saying. Like, Anna Delvey had that kind of vibe where she would do these things and people would just let her. Right. And um, Neff noticed the same rich people who act nonchalantly about money vibe uh, as Rachel that is, it seems to be one of the key things that sold her scam. When you're super rich, you can be forgetful in this way, which is maybe why no one thought much of the instances in which Anna did things that seemed odd for a wealthy person. Calling a friend to have her put a taxi from the airport on her credit card or asking to sleep on someone's couch or moving into someone's apartment with a tacit agreement to pay rent and then not doing it. Maybe she had so much money she had just lost track of it. Yeah, that actually reminds me. My rich friend that I mentioned earlier, uh, I helped her move out of her place and I put her u-haul on my credit card because i was picking up a u-haul to meet her and she never paid for it it became a big thing and eventually when i was like i need my money for that u-haul she had just forgotten it it just slipped her mind and that that like that's what i'm saying this is not if for someone who is super wealthy this does not sound strange to me it may seem strange but it would only make me think like oh she's just one of those rich people who doesn't think about money like that yeah from what i read uh she kind of had this flighty vibe being sort of forgetful. So I can see just sort of writing it off as a part of her personality as well. Totally. And it does kind of sound like throwing money around and making it so that people kind of owe you or feel obligated to not point out the inconsistencies of your scam is kind of part of her armor. Neff writes about how she once called something out that she found a bit odd about Anna. This rich person who actually legitimately was rich Anna had told Neff that this person's father, they were thinking about being investment partners. This person like had stock in this hotel. And so when Neff mentioned this to the, to the rich guy, the rich guy was like, don't you think that if my father had an investment partner staying at a hotel where he kind of, that he kind of owns, that person would be staying in a suite, not like a little deluxe room? When Neff asked Anna about this, Anna said, do you ever just have someone do you so many favors, you kind of want to pay them back in silence? And I mean, come on, that is a great line. Like, that is like something out of a movie. It really is. It's Hollywood. Hollywood couldn't write something better than that. It's so good. It's so good. It's so good. Another great tidbit about Anna's story is just what a bold face scammer she was. One of my favorite points is that the personal trainer that you mentioned earlier, when Anna was still stuck in Marrakesh, and she had been low-key scamming this woman, uh, Anna didn't have a way to get back to the United States. So she asked if this woman could put a, a plane ticket on her credit card, and then Anna would, quote, pay her back later, but we all know how that goes. And the woman said, sure, I guess I will. And Anna asked, can you get me first class? Which, again, it's such a impressive display that it's hard for me to not sort of love it. I think she she really tapped into that kind of how people behave when you are used to that type of money, that if you're used to first class and you think money is no big deal and that's just something you sort of expect, you would ask for first class. I think she sort of understood this class of people pretty well and she played the role very well. Yeah, like I think she, I think you're right that she knew the markers of how to make these people who were not moneyed but who were in her orbit believe this scam. Like, you know, it's like how magicians, they have like a flashy thing and they know that you're going to, your eye is going to be drawn to it, but that it's actually, you know, a, a misdirect, you know? It's like these little things that make you believe in the scam. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a little bit more to talk about, but we're going to pause for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So Neff's version of this story kind of begins to unravel the same way that it did for Rachel, which is having to pick up a big bill for a pricey meal. Um, it sounds like they went out to this big meal. The waiter came back to his station and began entering the credit card numbers. So basically, it sounds like Anna gave him a bunch of credit card numbers and had the waiter put a bunch of them in to see if they would work. And none of them did. Uh, Neff says, I started to sweat because I knew the bill was mine. The amount of the bill was about $300, which isn't a lot of money compared to the other bills that Anna was racking up, but it was a lot of money for somebody like Neff, who ended up having to cover the bill. And she says that doing so made her feel sick. But after all the money Anna had spent on her, she understood that it was her turn. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I can, I can see that too. Like, you don't want to argue about money 
necessarily with someone who has been, at least in your understanding, paying for the bill up until that point. Exactly, exactly. Um, And yeah, that's really when things sort of took a turn. And really for Neff, what I think was really the hard part here was this idea that this was so intersected with Neff's work because she was staying at the hotel where Neff worked. And so at one point they realized Anna has no credit card on file and she'd basically been living in this hotel and the management of the hotel came to Neff to help her sort it out. And they were like, yeah, did you, did you know this person was staying here without a credit card? Like blah, blah, blah. And in a classic scammer move, when this was brought up to Anna by Neff, Anna compensated by buying bottles of expensive champagne for the hotel staff. Uh, thinking that like, oh, if I get them a pricey gift, maybe that'll smooth things over. Anna didn't pay, and eventually they locked her out of her room. Uh, Again with Scott Pruitt, that happened to him too. Yes! (laughs) More similarities, more similarities. So in April, Anna deposited $160,000 worth of bad checks into the same account, and somehow was able to withdraw $70,000 from that account before they were returned. And that's how she managed to pay off her hotel. So... Again, really like moving money around, using one scam to pay off another person that she had scammed. And again, keep in mind, Neff and Anna were really cozy. They were buddy-buddy. And Neff worked at this hotel. So of course it got her into all kinds of hot water with her job, I'm sure. Neff writes in the cut that at one point they called her into the office and they said, Neff, did you know about this? She says she started dying laughing. And she says that she thought it was kind of a boss move. So Neff and I really see eye to eye here in a kind of way where even though it's a massive scam, you kind of got to respect it. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Just the level of it, the scale, and to have so many people sort of pulled into it. There's a part of part of you that sort of has to, has to respect. I got to give credit where credit is due on this one. So later, Anna deposited two bad checks into an account she had at Signature Bank, netting her $8,200. And this is how she ended up being able to take what she called a planned trip to California, where she was arrested outside of passages in Malibu and brought back to New York, where she would face six counts of grand larceny and attempted grand larceny, in addition to theft of services, according to the indictment. And the cut got to the real Anna behind the scam. Anna Sorokin, who was born in Russia in 1991 and moved to Germany in 2007 when she was 16 with her younger brother and her parents. Anna attended high school in Eichweiler, a small working-class town 60 kilometers outside of Cologne, near the Belgian and Dutch border. She is not actually an heiress. Her dad worked as a truck driver and later as an executive at a transport company until it became insolvent in 2013, whereupon he opened a heating and cooling business specializing in energy-efficient devices. So even though there was no truth to her being this rich German heiress, I think a lot of Americans, myself included, probably know so little about Germany that if she said, oh, I'm from this like small town in Germany, it, it would even, even if you knew that town was not, you know, fancy and wealthy, it sounds like a working class town, you might buy into it a little bit. Like, oh, she says she's from this town in Germany. Sounds fancy. Well, it's kind of funny because I think it also plays on the fear that we all have of looking stupid, right? Or being embarrassed. You want to sound like, oh, sure, I know where that is. Like you're educated and you're aware of that world. You don't want to admit that you don't know something. So it kind of plays on just the human nature of trying to to fit in and sound intelligent in front of people. Well, that actually reminds me of another scammer couple that I love. The couple that scammed their way into the Obama administration's state dinner. So their last name was Salahi. And somebody wrote that because this was a state dinner and you had lots of like foreign diplomats and foreign important people, because their name sounds a little bit like like an important, it could be the name of like an important couple from abroad, that that was one of the reasons they were able to scam their way into this dinner so easily because nobody wants to look at the doorman who is giving this like important foreign couple a hard time. So maybe it's just better to just let them in, even though they aren't an important couple, but you know, that that idea of not wanting to, A, embarrass somebody who was important, or B, be embarrassed because you didn't know who this important person was, definitely feeds into it. 
Sure. And like a fear of being called out on your your ignorance on something or causing like a kind of a scene. I can completely understand wanting to avoid that and just going along (laughs) with it. And then finding out that uh, it was all a big, a big lie. (laughs) So another thing I love about this whole Anna situation is that when the cut interviewed her from prison, she still sort of maintained that this these, these grand ideas, opening this fancy art club for rich people, she still maintains that they were actual plans that she had. They weren't, it wasn't a scam. She actually believed that she could move enough money around and fund this thing and make all the money back. Yeah. And uh, if it's true, it's always a more believable story if there is a little bit of truth to it, you know? If there's like, just a peppering of, of true things in there. That's the crux of any good scam, is a little bit of truth. Yes, exactly. So this line at the cut, I think, crystallizes for me why this is such a fascinating story. They write about her, her grand plans to open this art club. They write, Maybe it could have happened in this city where enormous amounts of invisible money trade hands every day, where glass towers are built on paperwork promises. Why not? If Abby Rosen, the son of Holocaust survivors, could come to New York and fill skyscrapers full of art, if the Kardashians could build a billion-dollar empire out of literally nothing, if a movie star like Dakota Johnson could sculpt her ass so that it could become the anchor of a major franchise, why couldn't Anna Delvey? During the course of my reporting, people kept asking, why this girl? She wasn't super hot, they pointed out, or super charming. She wasn't even very nice. How did she manage to convince an enormous amount of cool, successful people that she was something she clearly wasn't? Watching the Rikers guard shove Fast Company into a manila envelope, I realized what Anna had in common with the people that she'd been studying on the pages of that magazine. She saw something others didn't. Anna looked at the soul of New York and recognized that if you distract people with shiny objects, with large wads of cash, with the indica of wealth, if you show them the money, they will be virtually unable to see anything else. And the thing was, it was so easy. I love that quote so much because I think it's true. I mean, Anna Delvey scammed her friends, a lot of whom didn't really have that much money to begin with. And side note, we actually don't even know the depths of her scams. But when you look at like, it does kind of make you think, isn't America kind of one big scam? And in a kind of way, that is one of the reasons why we're so fascinated by her story and stories like hers, because we see people sort of scam their way into success all the time. And in a kind of way, it just seems like what this country is built on. Yeah, I love that quote too. And it sort of reminds me of um, every time I go to Las Vegas, I have a weird, there's just a weird feeling in being there that I can't look away from this. This is like (laughs) humanity at its basis, like pleasure, entertainment seeking. It's really hard to describe, but I think that Anna was able to tap into if you do have a large amounts of cash or shiny things to distract people that we are so hung up on this and it sort of like reveals the superficial aspect of humanity that is both fascinating and kind of upsetting. It's a really interesting dichotomy. Definitely. I'm sure folks are so tired of hearing me make this connection, but I do think there is a little bit of a social media aspect to this because Anna Delvey's Instagram is still up and she has the artifice of someone living the lifestyle of like a, of a mysterious, wealthy, traveling, you know, rich girl. She has that down so well. And I think it's what you're saying. It's like, if you could have the trappings of wealth and the sort of shiny artifice of wealth, that really, it can be so distracting that even though you know it's not real, you kind of let yourself believe it. And I think that's what Anna trafficked in. Even though we know, like, There is no free lunch. Like if someone befriends you and says they're going to whisk you away to Morocco for free, that's probably not true. But it feels so good to believe that you could live a life like that. I just, this really just reminds me of my times living in New York when I would just look at these, these, these young women who were the same age that I was and I would want their life so badly. I'll never forget this time. I had to go to Kinko's to fill, because I was filling out this paperwork and it was this really intense, like, involved having to get things copied in triplicate and all of this. So I had to go to Kinko's. Kinko's was a little bit far away from my apartment and the subway wasn't working. And so the only subway that I could take to get there was was not working. 
So I had to walk. And so I walked. It was like a few miles in the hot, hot sun. And when I got to Kinko's, it was closed. And I was like overcome with this feeling of dread and sort of turmoil. And I turned around to like go back to, you know, walk back home because there was no way, other way to get home. I couldn't afford a cab. The train was down. That was it. When I turned around, I turned around too quickly and I, I ran smack dab into a road sign and it broke my glasses. Oh. And so, so I sat down on this stoop in Williamsburg and somebody opened the window of the stoop I was sitting at and was like, can you leave? Can you not sit on my stoop? And <laughs> right in that moment, this black car full of beautiful, thin, young girls, probably my same age, got out of this car and they were impeccably dressed. They were like hipster chic. They were laughing. We're the epitome of Brooklyn carefree. And I remember thinking, we live in two different cities. At that moment, felt so, I just felt, I've never felt dirtier or sweatier or grosser or more sort of down on my luck. (laughs) I want to be clear. There are people who are living much, much harder lives than I was living in Brooklyn. But in that moment, I felt very down. And seeing this, these glittering girls who just seemed to float on air, getting out of a town car, like a, like a private town car. I just remember wanting that so badly, so badly wanting to know what that life would be like to just wherever you wanted to go, there's a ta- it's just a town car away. You know, and I'm sure these girls have problems. I was definitely projecting my own stuff on them. But I see that in Anna where, you know, a Vanity Fair photo editor who makes 60 grand a year in one of the most expensive cities in the world probably sees someone like Anna and what they offer as so just intoxicating. And the idea that you could that you could be within grasp of it, I don't blame anybody for getting caught up in her in her whirlwind. No, I don't either. It's like a, a tale of two cities for these are modern times. <laughs> it is though. I know, I know people are thinking like, why did you do a whole episode on this? But it is. It really demonstrates a lot of class aspiration and sort of the perversion of class aspiration, I think. Yeah, I think you're completely correct. So that's been our our first and what will probably be a a mini series on scammers. Oh, you know, I could talk scammers all day. There was one time I was was, um, watching this documentary on Netflix and somebody came over to my house and I was like, oh, I've been trying to watch this documentary on, on wine on Netflix for so long. And he was like, documentary about wine on Netflix, that does not sound like something that you'd be into. And I was like, oh, actually, it's about this wine scammer who ended up scamming all these fancy wine types into buying like counterfeit wine. And he said, oh, that sounds that sounds right. I was figuring you would not be watching just a straight by the books documentary about wine. Somebody would have to be getting scammed for you to be interested in it. <laughs> Well, if you listeners uh, have any suggestions for um, for scammers that we should talk about, please send them to us. And if you're a scammer, if you're currently scamming, give us a call. We'll, let's talk. Let's talk about your scams. Yes, Bridget. Bridget would love love more more than anything to hear from you. Yeah, and in the meantime, let's talk about some listener mail. Okay, Jacqueline wrote. Sports fandom slash, this is about our fan fiction episode, it exists. RPF is not solely limited to one direction. I myself these days tend to read and write football RPF. I think our demographic slants a little bit older than average. Most folks I know in it are in the mid-20s to mid-30s. I also know people who write a lot of hockey RPF, but I don't follow hockey enough to really know more than some of the main players and ships. In both cases, though, I think in addition to exploring everything you mentioned about deeper relationships between folks we already see in canon, there's something kind of interesting about exploring masculinity, issues of homophobia, and very public life, particularly in exclusively male spaces. Maybe I like pretending to be a fly on the wall. I don't know, but that's definitely part of it. There's also a contingent who writes femslash, usually about the American women's national team. Women's football outside of USWNT tends to be pretty small fandom generally, so if you're like me and follow Brazil WNT or Chelsea ladies, you're just SOL. It's interesting because my academic research has put me in contact with several professional footballers, some of whom appear periodically in fic. The ones I know aren't that famous, but it's happened, and they definitely know some of the guys who regularly star. Logically be kind of weird... There's a really firm separation and compartmentalization in the fandom between ship's fic and real life. 
Characterization in fic is mostly drawn from interviews and social media personalities, but I don't think anyone thinks, oh boy, I don't know much about sports. These two sports folks <laughs> are secretly in love or would ever present them with slash fan works in person, which I suppose does make it a bit different from some live action fandoms like Supernatural or Avengers. Maybe a year ago, there was actually a bit of panic when an editor from Deadspin wanted to do an article on football RPF centered around New York City FC players. This led to me and some other folks I know changing the privacy settings on some postings on AO3. Happily, I think the article was dropped. While I don't think many of us are ashamed of our writing hobby, per se, sports fandom can get super toxic, and our little corner, AO3 and Tumblr, tends to be pretty much troll-free. The concern was that added attention from, say, r slash locker would lead to writers being harassed. I don't know if that concern was really logical, but hey... Like the rest of fanfiction, football RPF is very much produced and consumed by women and non-binary folks. The few cisgender men I know who exist around it, and I don't even think these two write, are gay. And this was in the wake of Gamergate, so I think everyone on the internet was still on high alert. Naturally, most of us have been put through the fake geek girl test at least once. We all have individual horror stories, but usually they go something along the lines of some dude at a pub thinking we're only there for a boyfriend... Or if we are there alone, it's only because the players are cute. Ironically, the folks that produce fic in this fandom are some of the biggest tactics and history nerds I know. If some dude really wants to quiz them on who was in the typical Manchester United starting 11 in 1996, I say go for it. Joke's on you, random pub lads. I drag my male friends to matches for my clubs, and I can ogle Eden Hazard's bubble butt while still knowing when he's offside and that Dries Mertens is the superior Belgian striker. I totally butchered that name. Apologies. At any rate, female football fans are often victims of gatekeeping, not unlike female fans in more traditionally geek spaces. But I wouldn't try it with the fanfic writers. They know their sh**. Anyway, this has gotten long. If you've made it through, many thanks for your patience. I really enjoy the women and queer folks side of football fandom, and I always love sharing it with interested parties. It's been incredibly supportive and a wonderful way to meet folks from all over the world. Wow, that is fascinating. Uh, yeah, I just, I thought that was really interesting because I can only imagine uh, kind of the intersection of fan fiction and sports fandom can get pretty toxic. And I'm happy to hear that there are these pockets on the internet that have gotten away from that. And it sounds fascinating to me. Yeah, of course, people out there are writing fan fiction about athletes. I, this never occurred to me, but as soon as we read the email, I thought, oh, of course, people are doing that. Of course they are. I love it. Yeah, I do too. Um, and please keep sending in everyone who sent in their fan fiction. Thank you. And please keep them coming. Please do. Next letter, Nicole wrote, I was so excited to listen to this two-parter on fan fiction. While I read a little fan fiction as a teen, I am now in my mid-20s and have recently begun to write some fan fiction because I find it fun, a relaxing creative outlet and good practice for writing my own original fiction as well. You touched a little on how women can explore their sexuality through fan fiction. And I wanted to share my own experiences. While I have not written any fan fiction of a sexual content, I identify as bisexual and I recently married to a great guy I have been with for most of my adult life. I have found that the more, quote, smutty fan fiction is a way to express and acknowledge the aspects of my sexuality that fall outside of my heteromonogamous relationship. Through the safe, independent medium of reading fanfic, I have also learned about many different kinks that I have discovered new ones that I have brought into conversation with my husband and we both agree it has supported us in being more open and more sex positive than we were raised to be. Recently, a 13-year-old female friend of the family was caught reading some sexually explicit fic on her Wattpad account, and I felt the reaction of her parents was a little shaming, including banning her from the account and sharing their concerns with others. While there is certainly some smutty fic out there that is questionable, such as incest fics, much of it explores sexuality in a healthy way, and often in a way that acknowledges emotional aspects of sex as well. I think in this way, explicit fanfic might just be one more positive way to explore sexuality than most porn, which is certainly something that many parents would shrug off if they had caught a son rather than a daughter looking at. P.S. Your comment at the end of part two about making lemonade out of lemons might have been funnier than you know. Lemon is a term for smutty scenes in fanfic. Who knew? Nicole, think, I'd love to say that we knew that and that we were making a really clever joke, but I didn't know that. Annie, did you? I did, but I didn't catch it when you, when you made that. That comment, I did not put that together, but that is really funny. <laughs> um, 
I had a friend when uh, we were probably 13, her parents caught her reading some dirty fan fiction. And, I mean, dirty for 13-year-olds, perhaps. Um, And uh, they banned her from her account. And I shared my printed fan fiction with her. I was a little little instigator trying to keep her with the hookup. (laughs) I love it. I love it. You were like, well, underground fan fiction network. I, yeah, I kind of was. Um, so uh, I, I love all these these letters about people who have found community and fan fiction. I, I'm really happy that that exists exists for us on the internet. And it does sound like it can be a healthy sexual outlet. Oh, for sure, for sure. And even I, I just think that since I do feel we publicly don't really allow young women to express sexuality or talk about it, I think that it is a way to explore things and figure out things about yourself um, safely. And there are definitely problematic things in fan fiction. I'm not saying there aren't, but I think in general, it is a, a positive thing that it, it, is, it is out there and it is a way to, to talk about, to explore these things about yourself. Definitely. Um, And honestly, it seems like the fan fiction episodes really struck a chord with folks. I'm happy that folks are still writing in. And like Annie said, please keep sending us those fan fictions. Yes, we're still, we were not joking about the the fan fiction uh, with high production value. Well, (laughs) higher production value. We'll see what we can do. Um, Like many series. So keep, keep sending them in. We are working on that. You can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And you can also find us on social media, can't you, Bridget? You absolutely can. We are on Twitter at momstuffpodcast, and we are on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. And thanks as always to Dylan Fagan and Kathleen Quillian for helping us make this show happen. Thanks as always. And thanks to you listeners. Please keep those letters coming. (laughs) 